I'm going to be uh, reading from Matthew chapter 25. Um, I've had a chance to pray with a number of people over the last couple of days over the phone and uh, people from out of state that uh, have called me from years ago just uh, going through stuff, going through crisis in their family. How many believe in the principle of sowing and reaping? Okay. You know that works in everything. And uh, I told a, a young, not young lady, she's tending to her mother who's got dementia and just out of the blue called me and said, I don't, I don't have a prayer partner. I don't have, I'm stuck here. I'm not able to be in church. And, and uh, I suggested someone I knew in, the, in that area and so why don't you just call them up instead of asking them for prayer, just ask them what you can pray for them. And sow prayer into them. And I guarantee either them or somebody else is going to sow prayer into you. We can't receive if we don't give. And it works in everything. You know, what does the scripture say? He that would have friends, must show himself friendly, you know, so, and and it works that way. I'm an accountability partner for a guy that's in another state. He calls me, supposed to call me every week. I get a report from Covenant Eyes. I did, I I think I mentioned this before, I did not know there was such a thing, but it gives me his uh, web search history (laughs) every week. So uh, he's been doing pretty good of late, but he uh, he just shared some things with me. He said, "I feel like I feel like uh, I've, whatever God's plan for me was, I've lost it." And uh, I gave him a little mini rendition of my message Sunday morning that the gifts and calling of God does not change. You may have missed opportunity, but His plan for you has not changed. Pick it up where it's at right now. Just step into what God wants to do in your life. So uh, the enemy, whatever he's taken from us in the past, we can't do anything about that. But we should not let him take away what's ahead of us. We should not let anxieties and fears rob us of what God has for us. We should step into what he wants in our lives without apology, and say, I'm not going to waste another day. I'm pursuing God's plan for me. And this guy honestly said, I don't know what God's plan. I said, well, take a gifts test. You ever done that? No. I said, well, get you a gifts test. Everybody has some gifting. Everybody. Everybody has faith. You know the Bible says that God has given to every person, every single person, a measure of faith. That's saved and unsaved. Because people can't believe in him without faith. And he gives them faith to believe. So at least you get faith. Walk in faith. Chapter 24, I'm going to read from uh, chapter 25 to begin with. There's three parables in chapter 25. And you have to understand, this is late. This is really late. This is right before 
he's arrested and crucified. So this is, this is all like, boom. This is the last week he's with them. These are the last days he has with them. These are the last messages he gives them. And uh, I'm going to read this first parable in Matthew 25, verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. And the reason I mentioned chapter 24 is it's a, it's a, it's a pivotal chapter in eschatology. It's, it's uh, the return of Jesus. There's questions. The disciples are asking him, uh, when are all these things going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your coming? And and he just goes, it's like he's, he's quoting Daniel. He goes into Daniel's prophecy and, you, and it's revelation touches on the same thing when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Jesus steps back into Daniel's prophecy way before John has his vision and John sees that. He sees the abomination of desolation. And there's so much wrapped up in 24 that you cannot understand 24 if you don't go a little bit to Daniel and a little bit to Revelation. So what is, what is this parable promoting? What, and with every story, and let, and let me just give you a thing about parables. I think you guys have done a class on parables in y'all's class. Be careful not to overinterpret. A parable. Because I've seen people do that with this. I've seen them say, well, the oil in Scripture is representative of the Holy Spirit. And so the five foolish people were, were people, they're virgins, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have, have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so they're left out. You see how you can... You, this is a story it's a story. You, you can't lecture these five who are foolish because they're not real. <laughs> it's fictional. Well, they should have known better. Well, it's, it's, it's a story. But why does he tell these stories? He's getting a point across, is he not? And so you look at this as what's the point here? And I think you have to go back 
Because when Matthew wrote this, he didn't divide this up in chapters. Translators did this. If you read the last, go back to the latter part of 24, and I want you to see if what happens with this story about the virgins is really kind of makes a little bit more sense when you see what it comes out of. This is, I'm going to start with verse 45 in, in the previous chapter. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away for a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces. This is a very nice visual picture here, isn't it? He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. That's the way it read when people were reading. It didn't that they stopped and said, let's talk about this. You see, even the connecting point of the first words in Matthew 25, 1 follows off of what he He's just been talking about a servant that is in charge. He's a steward of stuff that's not his. And when he thinks that there's no accountability going to be coming anytime soon, he just takes advantage of the whole thing, and he, and he beats up those that he's over. And, and again, this is, this is a story, but it's a little bit more of a direction as to this guy is going to be held to a high standard, and that high standard is going to get him an assignment with those who are cast out, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he starts, you know, it reads like, gnashing of teeth, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. So when you start reading it down through here, what characterized those two? When he said five were wise, five were foolish, what was the deciding factor? Yeah, the, the five they, that were foolish was they just took their lamps. They didn't think about oil. Could it be that he's making a point here, the same point he made in the previous, is that people take it for granted that they're going to be okay and that the delay is not going to be very long? Because he says in the story that the bridegroom took longer than what they expected. That all of them fell asleep. So there you go. How about that? How about that in the story? (laughs) They all fall asleep. The wise and the foolish. So it wasn't that, that there was this standard of having to stay awake all night is whenever he came, you were ready for him to arrive. And he happened to arrive at what part of the day? Midnight. In the middle of the night. 
And the story goes that the five foolish ones knew that they were in trouble. And then they wanted to piggyback off the ones who took the added effort to put oil in jars and to bring that oil with them just in case. He's making a point here. I think, I think that it would apply to all of us. The point he's making. The five brought oil in jars. The other five brought their lamps with no oil. And so we're not going to read more than that into it. But how can we interpret the story? What is he saying? What, what about this story? Is there anything that stands out to you other than what we've already talked about? How did, how did Jesus interpret what happened? He does. He, he interprets it. And this is the beautiful thing about Scripture. Most of the time, we don't have to try to figure it out. He kind of gives us a clue. And he does in this. What's the clue? What's the conclusion that he comes to? Yeah, verse 13. He gives a story, but he shifts to what this story should make, should do for you. This should be the effect. This is a story. And I think sometimes we just need to remind them when we're reading parables, there's stories. But what is, what's the point? And the point is, and even... even goes and transitions to looking them straight in the eye and says, and this is what this should do for you. Keep watch. Keep watch for what? His return. And that was the questions that began this whole section. This section started at the, at the beginning of chapter 24 when his disciples were like, he said, oh, this is going to be destroyed. And they said, when is that going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the world? Those were basically the three questions. When's the temple going to be destroyed? And what's going to be the sign of your coming? And what about the end of the world? Those are all three different questions. And he takes them through about, you know, there's going to be all kind of chaos. Don't, don't worry about it. The end is not yet. But then he gets and says, how, does this, how should this affect you? How should this affect you? And that effect is in verse 13. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. And you can go back and reach 24 and you, and you know what he's talking about, his return. He's already talking to them. And I don't, I don't know if anyone can categorically declare how all this works. And there's anybody who thinks they've figured out eschatology, charts and all, I'm just like, <laughs> there's too many things that we can't figure it out. You know, and I've, Harley Ulrich, I, I just love to hear him teach on, on prophecy, and he had the big chart. I mean, I mean remember... Prophecy to, yeah, the whole, the, the, everything, the chart of Revelation and Daniel and uh, dispensational truth, Clarence Larkin. I, I, I used to just consume those books. And then what do we get into? We get into stupid stuff. We get into saying, oh, the United Nations recognized Israel in 1948. So that means in 40 years, in 1988, Jesus is coming. 
I had someone. I, t- I think I told you. I had someone. I'm, I, I, I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to bring it back up. That told me in Sam's right after the election that when Jesus comes, what's going to happen? There's going to be a last trump. <laughs> Shall sound. I'm not making this up. This guy pastors an assembly of God church. And says, and Jesus is going to come before Christmas. And I want to say, are you okay? Do you need to go see someone? I'm like, it's all I can do. This. I'm looking at him and says, are, are you crazy? I, I'm thinking that. Are you crazy? Certainly you're not telling your church this. This is crazy. So I don't know what he's told them. They got the wrong year. Maybe... Well, it can't be this year because we already had Christmas again. But this is where people get, they they just get so consumed in trying to figure it out. And I'm telling you that there's people, uh, I I don't know if Christian television helps people or hurt people. uh, My bottom line is I think most of it hurts people. Because they're just like, we're going to run out of food, need to get food supplied, and we got a special on a year's supply of food. I, 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 I just can't take it. I can't take it. And besides, my, my brother has put up all kind of jars of can, uh, green beans, so we're going over there and eat green beans if, if we run out of food. I, I've got a plan. It's John Lynn's cellar. We'll eat green beans until we figure out something else to do. But th- this, is, this is what Jesus is trying to get across to them is to live in a state of readiness. This is the whole point. He's not, he's not, they're, you know what? They're wanting dates. When? Come on, tell us so that we can like get ready when it happens. And, and he says the point is not, not when it happens, how you will be prepared for it when it happens. And that's what his point is, is watch, pay attention. Um, We have heard many testify that at the end of their journey, they want to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, that's in chapter 25. It's not in the parable of the ten virgins, but it's in the next parable where he gives a bag of coins, a bag of money, to three different people. I want to take you there. That's verse 14. It's right after verse... See, I want you to see all these parables. He's, he's making a point. I want, to, I want the Lord to be able to say to me, come on in. Well done, your good and faithful servant. Well, <laughs> don't we all, right? But is that, is that the point of the story? Is that why he tells this parable? Verse 14. Again... And he's linking, he's, he's just tying all these things together with 24. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants, trusted his wealth to them. He gave one five bags of gold to another two bags to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went out at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. The same with the two, he gained two more. Verse 18, the man who had received one bag went out, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. 
The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, you've entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. This is a line in a parable, okay? Okay, just want to make that notation. His master will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master says the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag, you know how this goes. Master, I knew you as a hard, you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering what you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid, went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him, give it to the one who has ten. For whoever has will be given more, and who will, and they will have abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do you think it means? What can you gather from that parable? When you see those words, weeping and gnashing of teeth, what is that? What, what do you think that is? It, yeah, it's outer darkness. It's a lake of fire. It's Gehenna. It's hell itself. So he's, talk, he's talking about the stewardship of what God gives. What, and, and I'm not a trying to us identify, well, what about that guy with one bag? Why did he do that? Why, was, why would the story end with this kind of catastrophic thing? It, it, could it be that the gift, the gift of salvation is offered to everybody? Because it's not performance-driven. Because none of this, it's not, none of it's ours. This was the whole thing about the people he entrusted. This, this was all the mass. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It's all his. None of it's ours. And yet he's using this to talk about accountability. And even when you get down in verse 31, you start getting into sheep and goat nations. Now we think he's, he's dividing up people. Sheep and goat are Goats are being divided. But I want you to see this last parable. See, I could have preached this in three part, but I'm, at my age, I'm going to preach as much as I can when I get the opportunity. So, it's a parable. Yeah. It's, it, it, it is kind of a parable, but he's talking about at the end... Uh, what, what was the question? When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your return? And when will the end be? And he's kind of answering those questions with these stories. And this is still an answer. He's still answering the question here. 
when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's really talking about himself now, and angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Isn't that interesting? That God is in a heaven that really was created for us. Because God doesn't need a house. But he created a permanent place for us his children. Then the king will say to those and right, come blessed, I'll pick it up in verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what do you come away with that? That's an ominous conclusion, is it not? What about the context? Is this a social gospel here, or what is this? I was hungry, thirsty, in prison. What what is he saying there? I don't think he's talking about people making a donation to the soup kitchen. A feel-good thing. I think he's talking about how we relate to people. Why did he make this almost like a litmus test? Why this? Why did he conclude with this? This is all conjecture and subjective, but I'm I'm just open to why, why that. Why did he go to saying the righteous are identified this way and the unrighteous are identified this way. Can sinners have compassion for people? Yeah, sure. So what's the difference? 
when, when did, when were you like that? And he said, to the least of people. I think what he's doing, he's qualifying that the activity of people comes out of who they are, not vice versa. There's a lot of humanitarian people. Bill Gates, you know, I hope he's a believer, but he can give all of his money away to help whoever and whatever. But why is he doing it? And see, even if something noble, if it's not done for the glory of God, what is it done for? Could it be for our glory? Could it be for our pride and say, you know, and America is a, is a loving country. You know, it could be a tsunami over in Indonesia, and guess, guess, who's, guess who's taking stuff over there by the tons? It's ministries, and it's our, our, our country. It's just we have that sensitivity. But personally, he's not talking about, you know, like the mass response, but he's talking about people and the response of people. And it's all about how it all comes down at the end. Which should do what for us? Wake us. Yeah, it's like, this is pretty serious stuff for how it concludes. And the interesting thing is anybody can do this. This is not renting out coliseums and preaching to 60,000 people the gospel and that's how you are recognized in heaven. This is every day. This is individual. This is us walking through life and says, Lord, you know, if I look at people through your eyes, then I'm going to treat them as though I would treat you. I'm going to value them. I'm going to value that person like you value them. There's people I pester. I, pe- I pestered one of them today. You know, they'll just have to go and hide somewhere. But because I think that's what God wants me to do is harass them to salvation. No, I'm, I'm, I'm using words that I... But uh, I just... If, if pe- I, I want to, to communicate to people their value. Not my value of them, but what God's value of them. But don't sometimes they get that value by how we come across? You know, that, that we are communicating something to someone. Brenda and I saw the little lady that comes to Hardy's, and she's got all kind of bags on that bicycle. And uh, I told her, I said, well, she's always, she's always down here. She's not always, but I've never seen her ride that bicycle. I don't think she could ride it. It's got, it's got, it's got like 50 bags. And she's out there in the brutal cold. And I don't know what it is about her, but I know one thing. When she comes in the Hardee's, there's people that buy her something to eat. I don't know if there's a mental issue. For me, that frigid weather, something, something's going on there. But how do we treat people like that? How do we respond to people who are just 
God has a hard life. I think he's telling us part of being prepared for the end is doing everything we can for his glory and not worry about the date that the trumpet's going to sound. Just live it out. Live your life out. Do everything for the glory of God. And I think we have to, you know, it's kind of like it made news. News. <laughs> uh, I didn't know this. Someone, you know, Brenda was the one that says, hey, you know, you need to look at this. And speaking in tongues made the headlines this week. And I'm like, and she was reading some of it off to us. says, because the people don't understand speaking in tongues. You know, it's called glossolalia, and they try to, they try to, it's saying words that people don't understand. No, that's not what it is. It's talking directly to God in languages we don't have to learn. It's the language of the Holy Spirit. But it's just interesting to see how people try to like, what's up? What? What? <laughs> Speaking in tongues? And if you haven't, you know, it, it's, it's amazing how just all of a sudden got on the national news. And uh, it's just us being who we are and living our life for us. And for us, speaking in tongues is a lifestyle. It's not an event. And I remember when Catholics packed out Notre Dame Stadium in the 1970s, 50 to 60,000 of them, and they're all singing in tongues. And their priests are anointing people with oil and praying, and they're having healings and you know, it was, a, it was one of the great decades, the 70s and 80s, of God invading liturgical circles. Boy, we could use a, an invasion in Pentecostal circles of the renewing of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God and the power of God and the wonder and majesty of being filled with the Holy Spirit and, and walking in a, in a power that's not of us and living our purpose out not on our gifts and talent, but putting our gifts and talent in the hands of the master and say, Lord, you can do more with my life than I could ever do with it. And it's amazing where he puts us. You know, well, that's not my gifting. <laughs> well, that's why you need the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because <laughs> not everything we do for him comes from our gifting. It comes from his gifting. I, I think we have to balance things. And I hate to use that word because I, I probably overused it at times in my, in my life. But balance the, the notion that we're all living in the shadow of the return of Jesus at any moment. At any moment. He could come. If he did, you have any regrets? Don't answer that. Would you like to have one more day? One more day. Not that you're going to get a sign out and go down in the intersection of McFarland and Skyland or, or go over to Bojangles and help the guy out over there. <laughs> and, and God bless him. But what if he did? What, what would you have said, man, I would have liked to have one more day.
reality, we all might be there. What we have now, let's live it out for him. Not in fear, not in regret. And say, Lord, what, what, whatever you can do with me, here it is. Here it is. If you want to make a fool out of me, and in doing so, people will come to know you, I'm wide open. But, Lord, don't let me miss what you have for me. Please don't let me miss what you have for me. That my, I want my days to count for you.